Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. With major campaign staffers for serious presidential candidates making bizarre claims that Stalin's gulags weren't so bad, we thought it might be a good time to review another memoir of life in these camps. And this time we're going to look at the testimony of an actual American who survived 16 years in the gulag, Thomas Segovio, whose memoir Dear America vividly describes his experience. Segovio's story is a fascinating one, giving a window into a little-known episode in American history, the period in the 1920s and 30s when faithful American communists actually believed they could improve their lives by emigrating to the Soviet Union. Of course, you can't really blame them, with so many celebrities and major media figures shamefully praising the Soviet system throughout that period, and sometimes winning Pulitzer Prizes for it. But the poor, deluded souls like Segovia were the ones who ended up suffering the consequences. Segovia was born in 1916 into a family of left-wing activists and indoctrinated in communism from a young age. Growing up in Buffalo, New York, he often attended party meetings, and as the Depression began, it seemed more and more plausible that another system might be superior. In 1935, after serving a jail term for assaulting police at a violent demonstration, his father fled to the USSR to avoid further prosecution. Thomas joined his father there, along with the rest of the family, soon after graduating high school. But as soon as he arrived, he started to notice that his observations didn't quite match the glowing reports of the workers' paradise he'd been hearing from news stories and from his father. We entered a large pionaya, beer parlor, filled with smoke, round tables, with people sitting while they drank, smoked, and talked. We sat down. As I looked about, I felt I'd swallowed a ton of lead. I'd never seen anything quite like this in all my life. I never saw so many drunken men and women in one place and one time. They were so poorly dressed, worse than the bums I had seen on the Bowery. I remembered my classes in Marxism at the regional training school. If I were to picture in my mind exemplifications of the lumpen proletariat, this was it. I remembered when the American communist leaders told us that drunkenness was a thing of the past in the Soviet Union. His father explained that they were in a transitional stage, still building true communism. But the Segovia's own lives were actually relatively good. Stalin was trying to encourage foreign immigration at the time to help support his official statements about the superiority of the Soviet way of life. Thus, the Segovio family had a nice apartment and could shop in special stores. With the help of some powerful friends, Thomas was able to begin working as an artist in Moscow and taking advanced art classes. Furthermore, to get a taste of these privileges, hordes of beautiful Russian girls threw themselves at young male immigrants like him. But it bothered him that in this land of supposed equality, he was living a life of privilege. He soon began to realize that the local population had no illusions about the failures of their new system. We made propaganda speeches describing the miserable workers' existence under capitalism and how fortunate the Russian workers were to live under socialism. I could not help noticing the contrast in appearance of the Russian people at those meetings with the audiences in the communist meetings in Buffalo. First, I was struck by the uniformity in dress, then by a lack of enthusiasm on the part of the plain, ordinary men and women beyond the first and second rows. There was not this spark which ignited eyes to gleam and bristle with fire. There was not that wild applause I'd so often experienced back home. Our guides constantly reminded us to shut our eyes to the somberness of the poor Russian people. They had been worse off under the Tsar. How wonderful everything would be in 20 or 30 years. I noticed that the charwoman in the house of political emigrants lived very poorly. 
I felt so terrible when I saw those women sitting in a corner, sipping a glass of hot water and nibbling on a piece of rock sugar. They could not afford to buy a glass of tea, and here we Pollock emigrants had all the tea we desired. As you've probably guessed, the good times didn't last. In 1937, as the illusions continued to break down and Stalin's purges began to accelerate, attitudes about the immigrants grew increasingly negative, and the Segovios were kicked out of their elite living quarters. His father disappeared, arrested and deported to the Gulag, though Segovio would not know for sure until much later. Every day he began to hear about friends and co-workers being arrested, and decided he had to leave the country. Foolishly, he thought he could just walk into the American embassy and request a visa using standard procedures. But as soon as he walked out, he was arrested as a suspected foreign spy, like nearly every Russian in those days who dared to enter a Western embassy without express orders from the government. At the beginning of his imprisonment, he was held for questioning the notorious Lubyanka prison in conditions that would have been unthinkable in most countries. We were no longer men. We became things. Refined men, snatched away from their loved ones in the early hours of the morning, feebly protested as they were hurled into cellars already crammed full to capacity. Those on the bottom sat groaning, twisting, and pushing the bodies of those on top. One hundred or so men squeezed in two hundred square feet. We were not taken to the toilet. The latrine bucket was constantly overflowing. Imagine those old professors, doctors, and intellectuals, sixty and seventy years old, with weak bowels. But one who's determined to survive must always think not how bad conditions are, instead how much worse they could be. Segovio almost laughed as he recalled his youthful communist activism in Buffalo. After damaging a fruit stand during a protest and being fined five dollars, he loudly protested American oppression and ranted about capitalist injustice. Now he was packed tightly in an overcrowded cell, being occasionally removed for irrational interrogations in which his claims to be innocent of espionage were dismissed out of hand. Much later, he realized why his protests were futile. We did not realize then that the investigations and interrogations were a farce. We could not realize it. There would be no trials and reviews of our cases. There was only one reason for our being incarcerated, to be sent off as slave laborers to the concentration labor camps. After two months of interrogation, Segovio found out he was sentenced to ten years in a labor camp for espionage. Then came a journey across the country in a crowded cattle car, at the end of which he and his fellow prisoners arrived at a mining camp in the remote Colima region. By this point, prisoners had few if any possessions left, most likely ragged clothes and poor-quality mattresses and blankets issued by the guards. But on the first night, upon returning from their day of labor in the mines, they were in for another nasty surprise. Following the others into the barracks, I heard cries of bewilderment and indignation. "'Where's our things?' We hurried to our spots. All our personal belongings, including the new blankets, striped sacks, and pillowcases, were gone. Someone went to the gatehouse to complain. The camp elder, accompanied by two guards, entered our barracks. Sure, said the camp elder. Why don't you write a complaint? And I'll tell you something else. You're all accountable for the blankets, mattresses, and pillowcases which you received yesterday. The cost will be deducted tenfold from your accounts. They had learned the hard way that the common criminal gangs, often just referred to as the thieves or the Russian Blotnia, were completely in charge of the other prisoners. The common citizens in there for political crimes had no hope of competing with the thieves' organized systematic alliance of theft and violence, and if they tried to complain, their very lives were in danger. The political prisoners were sent out for long hours of back-breaking labor in the gold mines and always penalized at mealtime due to their output not meeting assigned norms, 
while most of the thieves had special jobs in camp and were exempt from this system. We had just fallen asleep after the third night when the camp elder, the work allocation leader, and several guards woke us up and ordered us all to get on our feet. The names of all those who had less than a 40 work fulfillment were called. My name was one of them. They led us out of the compound back to the gold fields and to work. Here it was, the third morning. I had worked 12 hours in the night shift, plus two more deepening the drainage ditches, and now I was being penalized with more back-breaking work. After these long hours of work, Segovia's much-reduced rations were issued from the small portion of the food supplies not stolen by the thieves, and he saw his health quickly declining. After a few months, he realized he was declining into the state known as a doco de aga, or fetil, loosely translated as a goner. It is difficult to translate the words into English. Yes, even the free citizens of Russia at the time were unfamiliar with the terms, the more so because prior to the Soviets, doko de agas did not exist. I believe that nowhere in history will you find the equivalent. Only in Soviet prison camps can they be found. Literally, doko de aga means a person who's nearing the end of his walk. Fatil is the wick of the candle. The first sign was when a prisoner lost hope. It was written all over their faces, their manner. They neglected themselves, did not wash, even when they had the opportunity to do so. The wick was oblivious to blows. When set upon by fellow prisoners, he would cover his head to ward off the punches. He would fall to the floor, and when left alone, his condition permitting, he would get up and go off whimpering as if nothing had happened. After work, the doko de aga could be seen hanging around the kitchen, begging for scraps. And then, on hands and knees, they fought and scraped until the last bit of precious food was stuffed into their mouths. To amuse themselves, the Blotnio would sit down in the mess hall after receiving their soup and gruel portions. After taking a sip or two, they pushed the plates away. When Doko de Agas leaped for the leavings, the Blotnia picked up the plate and hurled the contents at the face of the nearest one. Then they guffawed. As he saw his health declining, Segovia was greatly relieved when one day he was taken from the work brigade and told he would be an orderly in a new barrack populated by Muslim prisoners. He couldn't believe his luck. After a few hours tidying up in the morning, he was even able to take a nap. But when he woke up, he discovered he'd been set up. The barrack had been completely ransacked, the newly arrived Muslims now stripped of all their possessions, and as the one supposedly watching the building, he was responsible. He knew the prisoners would have no qualms with murdering him in revenge. About to lose hope, he decided on one final desperate measure. He went and asked the thieves themselves for help. Surprised by his approach, the thieves asked him whether he was there to accuse them of something, but Segovio insisted he was just there to ask for advice since they were so knowledgeable about the ways of the camp. The thieves were now fascinated by him, having never spoken to an American before. They asked if he'd ever seen Al Capone, and he started to tell them all the stories he could remember, including new stories about other famous American criminals like Dillinger. When he mentioned he was an artist, they also asked him to draw some portraits of them. Cameras and photography were unheard of in the gulag. His drawings turned out to be pretty good. By the end of the evening, they'd fed him some precious white bread, otherwise unavailable to non-thieves, and invited him to come back the next night. The end result was that Segovio became a favorite of the thieves. He visited them regularly, telling them stories and drawing for them. When they discovered his art talents extended to creating tattoos and to creating realistic drawings of naked women, his survival was further ensured, and he managed to survive the winter of his first near-goner status relatively healthy and well-fed by gulag standards. He continued to be horrified by the treatment of the other prisoners, though, as in the case of one young thief who'd lost his cushy camp job after some misbehavior, 
but decided it was too undignified to work at general labor and loudly refused to head to the mines. Vasya fought back as he lay on the snow-covered ground. Four guards held him while two others undressed him. They tied his hands behind his back, picked him up, and tied him to the sled. Vasya, clad only in his underdrawers, hollered all kinds of anti-Soviet epithets. A cold chill pierced my soul. I could not believe what I was seeing. Here I was freezing, stomping the ground to keep my feet warm. How long could a naked man last in the frost? A minute? Two minutes? Not one of us raised his voice to protest. The horse dashed through the gates, driven by the senior officer guard, and Vasya's cries were strangled by the frost. He froze to death. Commandant Sergeyev yelled out to us, Let that be an example to all other work refusers. But Segovio himself was still in more danger than he realized. He discovered the hard way that prisoners are liable to be transferred to another camp at a moment's notice. He suddenly found himself removed from his circle of protectors. Over his 16 years in the camps, yes, his term was arbitrarily extended when it was time for him to be freed, he was continually moved from one place to another. In some camps he found barely livable conditions, with a soft camp job as a propaganda artist or with the help of thieves who valued his art and storytelling. But in other camps he was sent back to general labor and near starvation. Here's a piece of his description of one of the bad ones. All winter we breathed frozen ice particles. By mid-December, more than half my comrades from Shrednikon had perished. When we awoke in the morning, we glanced at the fellow next to us. Was he alive? If he was dead, we hurriedly took his rags and covered the corpse. The bodies were piled like logs. When three or four hundred accumulated, holes were bored and blasting took place. The corpses were thrown into a mass grave, then covered. When I looked at my bones, I was scared. I was worse than any of the walking skeletons in the Shrednikon recovery barrack. There was no flesh on my bones, only gray, scaly skin. Someone told me to sit down and wait my turn. I could not sit. It hurt terribly. I felt my buttocks. There were none. The doctor pulled me aside from the others. In a low voice, he said, Thomas, to look at your body, it's as emaciated as any I've ever seen. It's fearful to look at your bones, but I can't find anything that will justify my listing you in the infirmary. Miraculously, a thief who wanted drawings of nude women came along with an offer of a steady supply of food, and Segovia's life was once again saved. He continued to experience these kinds of ups and downs with just enough good luck to keep him alive until the end of his extended sentence. By the time he was able to return to his family in Moscow, his father was dead. Even then, he was subject to rules of internal exile, and it was not until 1960 that he and his mother managed to get out of the USSR. Eventually, he managed to return to the United States and wrote his memoir. Manuel, what do you think of this story? <laughs> Poor Segovio. I mean, what else could go wrong for this fellow? First, he, uh, he gets duped into believing that there's something much brighter in communism, and then uh, he falls for it, and then he can't get out. Eventually he did, you know, so I'm glad the story has a good ending, but um, honestly, this is something that most of us don't realize, that when people get into tough situations like Segovia did, going into the gulag and prison, uh, you fight to survive. 
those places can kill you quickly if you're not a survivor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like what uh, Segovia said about his thoughts when he was first in prison, that the, the key is not to think about how bad things are, but think about how worse they could get. And, uh, and they, that's probably what kept him alive, because a lot of it is your mind, you know, helping you stay alive. And, and he certainly used that to his advantage. You know, one thing that that I see with his story is a uh, surprising parallel with the story of the uh, the guy who uh, assassinated uh, President Kennedy. Um, he also was disappointed with uh, capitalism in the U.S. and decided to go to Russia because everything was going to be better there. <laughs> in a similar story, he thought, you know, he could just leave. In his case, he was actually able to leave uh, as opposed to Segovia, you know. But it this is a, a very moving story in many ways because it, it teaches us that that uh, there is a reason why people are not uh, lining up in caravans to get into the Soviet Union or any other uh, uh, communist uh, regime like North Korea. Uh, so whenever you hear someone telling you how wonderful something is, uh, it's better to see what people are doing because normally people know where to go to find progress and find a better life. And I think, and I think sometimes we try to fool ourselves in thinking that if we just read it in a book or listen to a professor, that that's going to be better. Yeah, yeah, and of course nowadays it's a lot harder for people to hide information than it was back then, right? I mean, he was sort of trusting the New York Times, and he didn't have any alternative news sources really to tell us what was going on under communism. Exactly. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I do you think this could happen again in a place like this? Like, well, I mean, it's it's happening right now, right? I mean, we heard uh, in our last episode, right, we where we interviewed a uh, survivor of the the Chinese labor camps. I mean, I think the level of brutality and sort of the the lack of concern for human life and human suffering is kind of similar. Uh, yeah, you're correct, because I was thinking with all this technology and information at our uh, fingertips that it won't be um, able to happen again. But I, I forgot to uh, think about that in some of these places, uh, uh, freedom of expression is not there the way we know it. Yeah, yeah, though it is different in that, you know, the information does get out now, right? I mean, obviously, like, um, you know, when we interviewed uh, Jennifer uh, Zhang in uh, the last episode, you know, she actually, you know, was able to spread the information about what happened there. And other people who've been in the, the Chinese prison camps more recently have also managed to get information to the outside world. Um, so I think nowadays, I mean, people have even less of an excuse for not knowing of the, the brutality of what goes on under communism. Yes, uh, and we we should probably be very thankful of 
of this uh, new developments with uh, uh, the communication advances that we have made, it, they help a lot of people that are stranded, uh, stranded like this, uh, like Jennifer and this other gentleman, Segovio, which unfortunately he didn't have that same same ability to to get the word out or get information in like Jennifer did. But um, I'm hoping that, that with the advances we're making, that less and less people uh, can be trapped like this uh, poor people have been. Yeah, but I mean, you got to be careful, though, because, you know, part of their treatment wasn't just due to lack of information, but I think was due to this sort of rage against the supposed, uh, you know, rich oppressors, right, that sort of animates the people who, who believe in the communist philosophy, right? I mean, so one of the things that motivated me to want to record this episode is recently, you know, you heard probably in the news those secret recordings of those uh, Bernie Sanders uh, campaign staffers who were saying how, you know, the hey, the rich deserve to be thrown into labor camps and made to do hard labor to punish them for everything they've done, right? And you could sense the same amount of rage that probably they had, you know, back then among the, the communist officials, right? That anything they do to these people, you know, no matter how inhuman, would be justified because they were such horrible people to begin with. Well, there's definitely no justification to take uh, anybody's... Um anybody's freedom away and uh, that's too bad I, I did not hear those reports but anyone who believes that it's okay to treat other fellow humans in in this way unhumane way the way that Sugobio was treated and many others around the world it's just totally wrong yeah yeah, I mean, it is scary. And, and again, you know, I think the scariest thing about it is the fact that places like, you know, North Korea and China and, um, you know, lots of other places, it, it does still happen. And we have to be constantly vigilant and, and watch for it to, you know, to not happen more. Absolutely. So let's uh, see if we can find some future stories where where we also uh, find people that have been able to make a difference within the system, but maybe those are much harder to find, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think they are. But uh, yeah, you're right. Um, we should try to find some more uplifting stories. Uh, this certainly was one of our more depressing ones. But again, you know, the fact that Segovia managed to survive through all this is in itself kind of inspirational. Um you know, and almost unbelievable, right, when you read about the things that he went through. So you should try to look at the positive there as well. So I'm assuming he is dead by now. Uh, yeah, you know, he eventually died of old age in the U.S. Um, but uh, his actually his descendants run a website, uh, Segovio.com, where you can actually go and uh, they have some of his drawings of life in the labor camps, if you're curious for, for more visual uh, impression of uh, what he went through. Oh, that is great to know. Well, thank you again for bringing us another great story. Uh, I'm say bringing us, Eric, because you're the one doing a lot of research, and I'm here to just uh, share the wonderful work that you you dig up from the past. All right, thanks, Manuel. As always, we've just given you a bit of a taste of Segovia's book. 
It's full of similar unbelievable incidents, near-death experiences, life-threatening scrapes, sudden reversals, and some moments of unbelievable good fortune, or at least relative good fortune in the context of the Gulag. We're all fortunate that Segovia survived to write it. Next time someone suggests to you that Soviet Gulag was simply a set of harmless re-education camps for serious criminal offenders, be sure to point them to Segovia's Dear America. As always, you can find a link to the book and to the website I mentioned, along with today's transcript, at storiesofcommunism.com. And this has been your Story of Communism for today.